Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Well, about three, this will be three weeks ago, we started this brand new series. And uh, we started a series, we were in the process of, of heading into a summer where we were going to walk through the book of Ephesians, and we're still going to do that after this series. But uh, when it, all the things started happening, and a lot of the things that are in our society, which you guys see on the news every day, we felt like it was uh, very appropriate for us to make a pivot and to talk about some of the things that either the church hasn't talked about a lot, or when they have talked about it, maybe in some cases they haven't talked about it in a way that would please Jesus and represent Him well. And so that's why we started this series, uh, Race, Politics, and Social Justice, and we are looking forward to uh, getting into Ephesians and really having a great summer in the book of Ephesians, but we wanted to do this. And so hopefully this summer for you, uh, I know probably... A lot of our summer plans have changed. The vacations that you had planned or maybe some places that you were going to go to, maybe you're for sure not going to be able to go to, or at least it's now up in the air and you're having to make some transitions with your, your plans. One of the things that is really, really good news if you're a Disney lover, and I know we definitely have some of those in the room, is this week it came out that Disney has a reopening plan. And you guys, some of you are as excited about that as you are about church reopening, let's be honest. Uh, but they have a reopening plan, and uh, I know for some of you, you love going down there, and you love being a part of what's going on. I grew up in Florida, and so where I grew up, and where Chris Dowdy grew up, and some of us that moved from Florida, we grew up kind of in the shadows of Orlando. And so just like Southern California, Orlando's one of those places that if you would have been in Orlando maybe 30, 40 years ago, you would have driven through a city full of orange groves and swamps, and you would have probably never thought that, oh, oh, I'm sure this is going to be a place where it's going to be a tourist place for the whole world one day. But, but you guys know the story if you follow anything about Disney. This guy by the name of Walt Disney, he looked at a, a bunch of orange groves and he looked at a bunch of swamp land right there in Orlando and he saw something totally different. And I, I, as you study history, if you've, if you've studied any of the history of Disney, you know that kind of the birth of the Disney uh, that's in Southern California started when Walt was just watching his girls and he was sitting on a park bench and he was watching his girls go on a carousel. And as he was watching, he kind of began to think, man, there should be a place for families, kind of an amusement place for families that is, is well taken care of and is really just built so families can have a great time. And as he looked around, he didn't find anything that really met his standards. And so Walt, in the early 1950s, he began to raise a ton of money. He began to build a team of people. 
And in 1954, in fact, July 21st of 1954, the building of Disney in Southern California began. And about a year later, just about a year, it was actually on uh, July 17th, 1955, Disneyland opened in Southern California. And what's really interesting is that day it was obviously live, it opened up, and there's a lot of stories that go with that opening day, but 90 million people watched it on TV as well. And what's interesting about Walt Disney, I mean, we we see this thing uh, years and decades later, and we see this huge company that makes movies and theme parks, and it's something we all know about now, but back then... Walt was told, man, you're ridiculous. You're crazy. This is never going to happen. You're going to hit bankruptcy quickly. But yet, Walt saw a problem and something that bothered him. And he decided to try something that nobody else had even attempted. And today we have Disney World. We have Disneyland. We have Disney in different, different countries. And there's a man in the Old Testament that like Walt saw a huge problem and something bothered him. And and this man, and if you know some of the history of Israel, his name is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a guy that saw a big issue and decided to tackle a problem that nobody else had wanted to tackle and that the people that had attempted it before, it just hadn't gone well. And if you know anything about the the book of Nehemiah, you know that Nehemiah is a guy that had the best job in the world. Like, think about what the best job in the world could be. Nehemiah had the best job in the world. You want to know what Nehemiah's job was? You're the food taster for the king. Like, that's what you do 40 hours a week, buddy. the, The stuff the king eats, the stuff the king drinks, we bring it to you first so that if it's Going to kill the king, we want it to kill you first so we don't give it to the king. And that was his whole job. And so he's, he's doing this, he's, that part of his job, life is good. And then all of a sudden, his brother named Hanani comes from Jerusalem, which is about 700 miles away from where Nehemiah was serving in the winter palace of his king. And his brother brought him some really bad news that stopped Nehemiah in his tracks. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to actually look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 2. And here's what Nehemiah's brother said. It says this, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah is serving at the winter palace of the king. Life is good, and all of a sudden his brother shows up with some, of, some other people from Jerusalem. And so when you see people, and maybe this summer you will, that you haven't seen in a while, you see some people that come and visit from where you grew up, one of the first things you say to them is, hey, how's things back home? Hey, tell me about Sam and how's Judy and, you know, tell me what's going on at home. And, and that's exactly what Hanani, his brother, did is he said, hey, let, let me tell you what's going on back with the people that have regathered in Jerusalem. 
Nehemiah, you, you might want to sit down for this because it's not good. The, what's going on in Jerusalem, man, it's, it's really bad news. He says this. He says, the walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. The people are in torment. It is not good because back in this time, the walls of the city, the gates were their defense system. And so when your walls are broken down, your gates are burned, you're, you're defenseless to your enemies. They can just come in and take what they want. They can do whatever with you. You have no defense system. And so he says, he says, Nehemiah, the people are in torment. And as Nehemiah hears this, he hears this heartbreaking, and think about it from his perspective, impossible situation. Like, like he's not going to jump on a plane tomorrow and head back to Jerusalem. It's 700 miles away. It might as well have been on the moon. Like, like what am I going to do? I'm sitting here tasting the food of the king. I hear about this terrible news back home. My, I, I don't know what to do. This impossible situation. It, it was heartbreaking. In, in a lot of the same ways as we look at our society right now, we look at all the things that are going on. Are, are, it's, it's heartbreaking and it almost seems impossible. Like, what are we supposed to do? Think about what's going on in our society right now. Marriages are being decimated. Racism is rampant. Pornography dominates our media. Young girls are being forced into sex trafficking in some of our most beautiful cities that we go to to visit. On the back side of these cities, there's sex trafficking going on and things that we wouldn't even imagine. People are hungry. They're homeless. Truth is a moving target for many. Many are, are hopeless, but they pretend things are perfect. And, and people are looking at the situations around, and it's almost like, what can I do? It's so ugly. There's so much bad going on, and there's so many social justice issues to address. I mean, where do we even start? And in the midst of the ugliness, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been called to enter the ugliness and represent Jesus. And here's what's great. Nothing that matters is impossible because of Jesus. Nothing that matters, nothing that feels hopeless, nothing that feels unredeemable, nothing that makes us throw our hands up in the air and say, now what? is hopeless because of Jesus. But the question is, and this is probably a question many of you have asked, how do we respond? Like, like Nehemiah, what, what are you going to do, buddy? You're 700 miles away. You're going to throw a post up on Instagram, maybe write a check and send it somewhere? I mean, those are all great things, but is that, is that it? Is that what Nehemiah, I mean, is, is that what he's supposed to do? And, and is that, you know, he can kind of not feel guilty anymore because he posted a couple things and maybe sent a donation in? What's he supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? And, and I want you to look at, at Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to look at verse 4. I want you to look at how Nehemiah responded because Nehemiah responded. Like he did something about it. He, he didn't just whine about it. He didn't just, oh, no, what are we going to do? He's like, no, I've been brought this news, and I have to step into this and do something. Look with me at his response, because I think we can learn a lot from it. Look at verse 4, the first thing we see. Immediately, 
In verse 4, it says it this way. It says, when I heard these things, when I heard this terrible, heartbreaking news, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The first thing Nehemiah did was his, his heart was broken. Like his, he just, he heard this news and it says, man, I just, I just sat down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. Not for like a few minutes, like I did that for days. My heart was broken by the news. These were people that he loved. This was his home country. This this was so heartbreaking to him that his immediate response was just a, a broken heart and just what was probably uncontrollable weeping and mourning for days. In our society right now, we have... The death of George Floyd amongst other people. We have the death of policemen. We have suicide. We have sex trafficking. We have deep hurts all over our city that we don't even know about. And, and, and usually, what, if, if we're honest, what we're tempted to do, instead of really stepping into the hurt and really feeling the hurt, at least what I'm tempted to do is I'm tempted to maybe put my head in the sand and my heart in a box so I don't have to feel the pain. But that's not what Nehemiah did. And, which leads to this question, what breaks your heart? Like, what, what really bothers you? What, what bothers you, what, when you hear about it, if you allow yourself to feel it, just breaks your heart. Just a few uh, weeks ago, Lori and I and Julia, we were watching a movie that I'd encourage you to watch. It was a, a really good movie. Some of you have already watched it called Just Mercy. And Just Mercy, it's a, it's a true story about a guy by the name of Walter McMillan who was put on death row for a murder that he didn't commit. And he was on death row for a few years, and he basically had tried to do some appealing, and just nothing was happening. Bottom line, he had kind of given up. And then this young lawyer from Harvard, another African-American man named Brian Stevenson, he, he kind of took on his case, and he said, he honestly, he wouldn't let Walter give up. He's like, no, we're going to, if you'll let me, I'm going to go after this and try to get you off this since you didn't do it. And, and the story goes on, it's a, it's a powerful story, and, and uh, bottom line, Brian's able to get him off because it, it's so obvious that he wasn't the one that did it, he gets him off. But there's a scene in the movie, about halfway through the movie, that is a powerful, heartbreaking scene. And, and what it is, is there's a man that has killed someone that is being sent to the electric chair. And it's, the scene's probably like five minutes long, and you feel this scene. It's one of those scenes in a movie, like you feel this scene. And so we're watching this scene in this movie, and all of a sudden, right behind me, my daughter, who doesn't cry at movies, all of a sudden, uncontrollably, is bawling her head off and says, I have to leave the room. Like, just, like somebody just died, like uncontrollable crying. It was so surprising. It was a moving and sad, like it was a scene that was powerful, but, but Julia doesn't, that's not normal. And, and she literally almost couldn't breathe. She had to get up and leave the room. And, and at that point, we weren't having a political debate about 
what we believe about the death penalty or anything like that. What we were doing was watching a movie and the brokenness of this situation broke my daughter's heart. And it reminded me of, of, of Nehemiah, like Nehemiah when he heard this, it, it just, it wasn't like he was trying to cry or trying to be broken. It just his natural reaction when he heard about the brokenness and the hurt of other people broke his heart to the point where he wept and mourned for days. But then as you continue to read through this passage, he goes from this hearing about this terrible situation and his heart breaking to almost immediately his next response. And it's in the second part of that verse 4. It's Nehemiah, the second thing he did is he cried out to God. It says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah, when he heard this, first response, he's just broken. But then before he does anything, it says that he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven for, and what we know now, three to four months Three to four months between the time he heard this news to the time he had a conversation with the king that could help him, he fasted and mourned and was broken and cried out to God. And what's interesting, when if you read through this passage and as he's crying out to God, the first thing he doesn't do, he doesn't go to God and say, hey God, here's my list of stuff and I need you to kind of work these things out and I need you to make these things happen. When he goes to God after he has this broken heart and he's talking to God, the first thing he does is he confesses his sin and the sin of his nation before he ever gets into what he hopes God will do with the situation. And here's one of the things that I've seen even in this last few months with all that's going on in our society. When when we when our hearts broken over a situation, sometimes it's as important that we look inside at what God wants to do in us, even before we look outside at what we need to do to help somebody else. And what happens is in the midst of a broken heart where we want to do something about it, God says, yeah, I want to do something in you, and then I want to do something through you. But I need to first do something in you. And that's what, he, what happened. Is Nehemiah cries out to God. His heart's broken. He's confessing sin. God's doing something in him. And, and, and before Nehemiah prayed specifically and powerfully for what he was hoping God would do, God did something in him. My friend Vance Pittman, he says it this way. You've you've heard me maybe say this phrase before. Prayer is not what we do before the work. Prayer is the work. Nehemiah understood this. Prayer is not what we do before we go do something important. Like prayer is the important. The victory's won in prayer, and then we just go live out of the victory that, that, that takes place in that prayer time. Nehemiah knew that. I mean, he knew, like, God's going to decide this, and then I'm just going to be faithful to whatever I'm called to do. But, but the, the prayer is the work. And that's what Nehemiah did. I, he, before he went to the king, which, think about it, he had access to the most powerful man in the nation. But yet, he didn't go to that guy right away. He went to God, and he cried out to God. He confessed his sin because he knew that was what was important. See, the, and I wrote this, the enemy doesn't care that your heart's broken. Honestly, Satan could care less that your heart's broken over whatever it's broken over. 
He's like, golf clap for you. You have a broken heart over something in our society. Here's when he gets nervous, when you get on your knees and you start crying out to God about it. That's when, that's when he gets nervous because that's where it get, things can change. See, because of prayer, there's going to be some people that are far from God right now that are going to get baptized in this church this year because you guys are going to pray and you're going to invite somebody. Because of prayer, we're going to see some marriages that right now are on the rocks. We're going to see them healed because we're going to pray and cry out to God for people. We're going to bring our own stuff to God and ask God to work in us. And because of that, something's going to happen in those marriages. Because of prayer, we're going to see prodigal sons and daughters come back to families and come back to God, not because we're great people, but because we have a great God, and we're going to cry out to God. Because of prayer, we're going to see healing in racism. We're going to see things happen because of God. And Nehemiah understood this. And so his first response is, man, his heart is broken, but then immediately after that, he cries out to God. But then here's what we see. After this desperate man cries out to God, his heart is broken, we see his next response. See, he does go to the king. About three to four months later, he he, he serves the king on a regular basis, but God opens the door for him to have a conversation with the king about this. And this king, honestly, if you read through history, this king actually had something to do with why the walls were broken down in Jerusalem. So for this king to let Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem to actually give Nehemiah supplies and security to go do the job is crazy. But that's what happened. After Nehemiah had prayed to God, he talks to the king about it, and the king says, hey, yes, you go back. You be a part of the solution. Let me give you some supplies. Let me give you some security to protect you on your road to there. And, and Nehemiah goes back about three, after he gets kind of the okay from the king. And then you look at chapter 2. He's now in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, and I think we can learn a lot from him on this, he doesn't come in with a big banner saying, I'm here to save the world. He comes in real quietly. Nobody knows what he's there to do. And look at verse or chapter 2, verse 12. His next response is this. Nehemiah's dream became a plan. He says, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So basically, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. And instead of coming in with banners and I'm here to save the world, he quietly comes in. He spends three days thinking, praying. He gets up in the middle of the night with just a few people and he goes and surveys the walls and kind of really gets a, a good picture of what's really going on. He gained perspective and then he developed a plan. It went from a broken heart and crying out to God and, man, wouldn't it be nice if something changed to, okay, we have a plan to make this happen. We have a plan to step into this and do something about it. See, many people are bothered by racism. Many people are bothered by homelessness. Many people are bothered by sex trafficking. Many people are bothered that their neighbor is probably on their way to a Christless eternity. That bothers a lot of people, but very few people will cry out to God about it and develop a plan 
to actually step into it and be part of the solution. A lot of people talking, a lot of people whining, a lot of people like, oh, I wish this was different. I wish my neighbor knew Jesus. But very few people will go from that broken heart to crying out to God and developing a plan to be part of the solution. See, when we were, most of our, Lori and I, our married life was in uh, Florida before we moved here. But we had a two-year kind of jaunt up in Lafayette, Indiana, where we, if you're a Big Ten football fan, you know that Purdue is in West Lafayette. Uh, and so Purdue's a, in West Lafayette, and then there's Lafayette. It's kind of one city, uh, kind of one big city. But when we, went up, when we went up there, right before we moved up there, we went kind of, Lori and I just went on a trip to kind of look at the area. We also wanted to look at what church we would go to as a family. And, and there was a church there called Faith Church that we decided, man, this is a really great church, and we feel like this is a great place for our family for a variety of reasons. And so we actually, on our first trip there before we moved, we set up an appointment with the pastor. Uh, his name was Steve Viers. And Steve was a guy that had actually taught us a class in college as a guest professor. And so we knew a little bit about him, but we sat down with him and asked him some questions. It was a, a pretty big, I mean, it was about 12, 13, 1400 people. So it was a pretty big church. And we sat down with Pastor Steve and just asking him a lot of questions. And one thing he said during that little interview stood out to me, and I have never forgotten it. And this church is such a good example of it. He said this. He said, around here, we don't talk about things for a long time. We either stop talking about them or we do them. But we don't just talk about things for years. And this church probably better, in fact, the pastor just wrote a book on community ministry. This church probably better than any church that I've ever known in the country reaches their community. And I wanted to show you a few, few things that they've done. The first thing they did is about uh, 15 or 20 years ago, they decided to have a counseling program, not just for the people in their church, but for the community. And so they began to train lay people to be biblical counselors. And on Mondays, if you were to go to their church on Mondays, you would see about 15 to 20 people, about four or five of them are pastors, and the rest of them are teachers, businessmen, nurses, just different people in different professions. And all the rooms in their church are full of people being counseled. They have a waiting list for counseling in their community that they've had for 20 years. They offer this every single week. Another thing they do is the mayor loves what they're doing so much and they have this some funds that they have to give to nonprofits. And so they decided, you know what, we're going to give this to Faith Church because we know they're going to use it well. And so what Faith Church has done is they've gone into terrible neighborhoods, they buy up houses, they remodel them, and they put good tenants in there that have a heart for the neighborhood, and, that, that, and those people are in there to revitalize neighborhoods. One picture I think we have is called the Hartford Hub. This was the grand opening. This is the mayor. This is Pastor Viers. Uh, this is the grand opening of what was a, a bar in a really rundown part of the neighborhood. 
The, the city sold it to faith for like a dollar. They tore down most of the building. They built a community center. They built a place where there was a church. They built a place for after school programs. They built a playground. I think the next picture shows some kids playing at it. Uh, but this is the Hartford Hub. This is one of the four or five facilities around Lafayette that this church has built for the community. The next picture I want to show you is what they call the North End Community Center. I sat down with Pastor Viers when we were in Florida. He was down there for a trip, uh, and this was after we went to his church. And he, they had already built two, instead of building a church, here's what they do. They go to their community and say, hey, what do you need? What would help you? Because we're going to build a church building, but instead of building a building that's just going to be full once a week, we want to build a building that can be full all week, and then, oh, by the way, we'll have church there on the weekends. And so they built these community centers, but I sat down with Pastor Viers a few years ago, and he said, Chris, there's an old hospital in our city that I'm hoping they'll give to us. And you know what we want to do with it? We want to take all the nonprofits in our city, and we want to put it under one roof. And we want to serve our community. And so this just opened like, I mean, it's massive. North End Community Center. And, and here's why. Because there's a church that said, you know what? Our heart's broken over the brokenness in our community. And we're not just going to whine about it. We're not going to just wish it would change or expect the politicians to fix it. No, we're going to take that need to God. We're going to ask God for big things. And then when God opens doors, we're going to step through them with confidence in God. And we're going to be part of the solution in our community. Because we have a big God. And nothing that matters is impossible because of Jesus. Nehemiah had a broken heart. He, he went to God in prayer. Then he, his dream became a plan. But the last thing we see is as you kind of read through this story, and I'd encourage you to unpack this whole book. Just take some time in your devotions and read through it. But in chapter 4, verse 6, you see a response these people had that was, I think, key to them making a difference. It's simply this. Nehemiah and the people worked with unwavering effort. In chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. The people and Nehemiah worked and served. They had a mind to work. They worked with all their heart. And, and here's what we don't know just by reading that verse. They had tremendous challenges as they were building this wall. They had their enemies. Remember what I said? They were defenseless because they didn't have a wall. Well, the enemies of Jerusalem, while they're trying to build this wall, they're, they're bringing false accusations against the workers. They're calling Nehemiah. Hey, Nehemiah, we need to meet with you. You need to come meet with us. And they had a plot to kill him. They were trying to kill and hurt the workers to the point where at one point Nehemiah said, hey, we got to split up. Half of you basically have your sword ready and half of you work because we got to protect while we also build. But these people worked with all their heart. And here's what's awesome. Nehemiah's team got the wall up in 52 days. Like a crazy. They didn't have Home Depot. They didn't have all the stuff we have. But these people in the midst of all these challenges worked with all their heart. And here, here's what I know. And this is 
what, what's really important for us to remember. See, Satan wants us to give up. Is, there, is that like new news to anybody? Like, no, that's, that's not new news. He wants us to give up. But here, and here's what's true. If your heart isn't truly broken about something, and if you're just doing something because it's kind of what everybody else in society is doing, and if you haven't went to God in a, a spirit of desperation, and, and you're kind of going into this thing like, well, I've got a lot to offer this situation, so I'm going to bring all that to the table and fix this, then you will give up. But the reason these people didn't give up when there was something that it, from human perspective was impossible is because it started with a heart that was broken and it moved to a dependence on God, a crying out to God like, we can't do this. We need you. So when the challenge just came, these people didn't quit because it was never about them. It was never about their ability. It was, it was always about God using them and giving them the ability to do something that would make a difference. And it's why I want to come back to that statement I started with as we, we close. Nothing that matters is impossible because of Jesus. And so the question I asked you a little earlier, what breaks your heart? What bothers you? Have you found yourself in the midst of all that's going on in our society, kind of putting your heart in a box, not wanting to step into the hurt and kind of just holding yourself back? Or have you allowed the Spirit of God to take the different things in our society that, that are terrible things and evil things and the hurt that people are feeling? And have you opened up your heart and said, God, break my heart over what breaks yours. I want my heart to be broken over what breaks your heart, God. And then what would, it, what would happen? Just imagine if before we announced we were here to fix everything, we took the thing we were broken over, and for you it might be something that's in national news, or for you it might be something very personal that nobody else knows about, but it breaks your heart. Imagine what would happen inside you and with the situation if you said for 30, 60, 90 days, I'm going to go to God every single day about that situation. Maybe six months, maybe just six months, every day. I'm going to maybe even skip some meals. I'm going to take some meals where I'm not going to, I'm just going to use that time to just go to God about this thing that breaks my heart. Imagine what God might do in us and through us if that was our response. What might happen? Here's what I think would happen. I think God would do some really unique, unique things in our heart, but I think God would then also give us some real clear direction on how we can be part of a solution. As you look around this room, you're, you're all bridge builders at City Walk Church. And you know what I hope never, never uh, doesn't bother us? I hope in this room that we are never kind of over the fact that people in our city are dying without Jesus. Like that never just, eh, yeah, that's like every city. 
I hope when you go to the grocery store and Starbucks, and if you're a teenager, when you go sit at your lunch table, that yeah, you interact with people and like you're not the freaky Bible person that everybody wants to stay away from, but, but that you are a person that loves people like Jesus, and when you look into people's eyes, you look past their eyes and you see what Jesus sees, a broken person that without Jesus will spend eternity without God in a place called hell, and that is really bad news. And we, that, we shouldn't get over that. It's why some of you will, will get here an hour or two early before everybody else to set up. It's why I hope when we open up the children's ministry that, that we, we serve families that have kids that might be crazy kids. But because our heart is so broken over the lostness of our city. And I think if, if that's where we stay, if we stay broken and dependent on God, who knows what God could do? Because nothing that matters is impossible because of Jesus. And so let's, let's ask God, and, and this is personal for you, if your heart isn't bothered by lostness, if your heart isn't bothered by things that bothered Jesus' heart, God's not mad at you for that. But I would encourage you to just, between you and God, say, God, would you change my heart? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for just the opportunity to talk to people and not a camera. And uh, Lord, I thank you for, again, this beautiful building that you have provided our church. Lord, I thank you for the families that are represented in this room. And, and Lord, even as I look through this room to, to know some of the stories of how you have worked in people's hearts and some of the miracles that you've already done and some of the things that families in this room are already rejoicing over because of what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would break our heart for what breaks your heart. And Lord, I pray that we would be individuals, but then that we would also be a church that works with all of our heart, not because we are so good or have such ability, but because we're so desperate for you and you give us the power to do what you want us to do. Lord, thank you again for all you've done. And I pray as we open up to the public this next week, Lord, that you would turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In Jesus' name, amen.